or Facebook or Netflix or uh, Amazon. You know, they all started with building monolithic applications that were built off of a single node database, which was then moved into multiple regions and zones. Hi, everyone. Welcome into HashMap on Tap. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you listening to the show today. I'm Kelly Koleffel, and so happy to have Richie Bachelor back to join the show again today. Richie is a data engineering leader. We actually met when he was running data engineering globally for Sherwin-Williams. He made a move recently over to Yugabyte's data engineering team. We are going to definitely discuss that. While at Sherwin-Williams, he was responsible for building a data engineering center of excellence. He is now, as mentioned, currently a principal at Yugabyte. He also spent some time at Oracle Corporation, an old stomping ground of mine, as well as Hitachi Consulting. Richie, welcome back into the show today. What are you drinking? First off, thank you for having me and thank you for the 100 episodes that you hash map on tap. Uh, you guys recently crossed that milestone, so congratulations on that. And but the second question, <laughs> I'm drinking a combination of two little drinks, actually. I have unsweetened black tea mixed with San Pellegrino, so I needed to do something special for hash map on tap <laughs> instead of drinking plain old iced tea. <laughs> okay, I like that. So a sparkling iced tea. Very nice. Mm. Very nice. Well... I will have today my go-to. I've got a bulletproof coffee. It's a half-calf. The, the difference that I did today, my wife got this half-and-half uh, half called A2, and mm -hmm. it is apparently cows produce an A1 protein, an A2 protein. The A2 protein supposedly is better for you, easier to digest, all that kind of thing. So, so anyway, I've got the A2 half-and-half. <laughs> half. It sounds super high-tech. I don't really know for sure, but uh, anyway, it tastes good in my bulletproof coffee, man. All right, so Rich, look into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check it out. A2 half-and-half. Half. So a number of topics kick around today. Mentioned a few of them. Definitely want to talk about the data engineering COE. You wrote a blog post recently where you really broke that down. I think that helped a lot of people. I'd like to explore that with you. Definitely want to talk about also... What are you seeing trends and where's investment going in this data space right now? And, and lastly, would love to dig into your current role at Yugabyte. You've been there for a little while now. I know still relatively new, but I think you're starting to see some things shape up. I mean, just mm -hmm. to kick it off, let's talk a little bit about this article that you wrote about a data engineering COE and, and just talk a little bit about that. Anything you want to hit on there, past experience, evolution of the data engineer, et cetera. That's a good topic for sure. And thanks for having me on the show again, Kelly. I've been with Sherwin for about a decade, and one of my primary responsibilities there was to provide data as a service that is easy to consume, that's secure, and that's elastic. I mean, it's three simple bullet points, but there's a lot that goes into it, right? Anyways, long story short, a few things that I've done for my team uh, within the data engineering space um, as how the team evolved from engineers that were originally ETL engineers, engineers that were data warehouse engineers that came together to form this particular data engineering team to service our customers' needs of providing that data. Uh, that is easy to consume, that's also is secure and elastic. And that was usually all mostly going towards into the cloud. And the journey of moving away from traditional star schema data warehouses, or maybe having still a few of those star schema data warehouses in the cloud and building a data lake and continuing to service ETL, ELT, and modern ingestion methods like streaming using Kafka 
and data modeling that's relevant to the cloud is basically where the <laughs> where that blog post came into picture. So the team's responsibilities around as what it takes to be a data engineer and what are the primary responsibilities within to be a data engineer, right? You can't do everything, but in order to have a team that has all of the particular responsibilities of ETL, data integration and transformation, the data modeling aspect of it, the sec- providing access to your data with security and adhering to your reg- regulations and compliances, uh, along with putting an architecture together for multiple ingestion points and for multiple uh, sources of system of records to, uh, into your warehouses and then you know determining a place to collate and wrangle your data either in a data lake and elsewhere so it touches a little bit of all of those six particular pillars and <laughs> a high level overview of what i thought would be needed in building a data engineering practice is what's in that block yeah, no, that's great. It seems like, you know, thinking back and you mentioned 10 years building out that data engineering practice, getting it refined. It seems like in the early days, if you step back 10 years, it was all about, you know, how can I get security? How can I get privacy? Today, I think we have done a pretty good job of that, we being the industry uh, in general. And now it's more about how do you give me quality, right? How do you give me usable, mm-hmm. trusted data that's high quality? Curious, has that sort of evolution over that 10 year period? Did you see the same thing where it was all about security? and now it's all about quality today? Where, where are you in that type of mindset? That's a great question. So I think like all of us, we've all started with <laughs> the RDBMS and normalization of our databases, right? Back in the day when Oracle was the gold standard, uh, we all built databases and uh, tables and structures using the EF Cod's 1970s paper of normalization and providing our DBMS topics. And that is very true for uh, the transactional side of the spectrum. But if you see the evolution, right, uh, as part of everybody's so-called digital journey, enterprises are moving uh, in in, um, similar footsteps of uh, hyperscalers like Google or Facebook or Netflix or uh, Amazon. You know, they all started with building monolithic applications that were built off of a single node database, which was then moved into multiple regions and zones for providing originally DR, but, you know, you need regions and zones. And then after you have that, then (laughs) compute started being a problem. So you started looking into options that gave you infinite compute that was basically the cloud and then once you had compute resources you wanted to use infrastructure as code so your deployment becomes easier and uh, that's where containerization has started to evolve google's uh, kubernetes or docker images um, and and after that the whole era of microservices has taken into shape and Finally, after that is the data tier, right? Which is the toughest to deal with. We've dealt with problems like from big data to now using this particular ecosystem of new infrastructure that cloud enables us, which shows and tells us that it is quite evident that the future is database as a service and it will continue to be in the cloud. So that's part of my journey too. My journey has been there like everyone else. We've started with that particular RDBMS uh, concepts and uh, using SQL and PL SQL, which is that language layer on top of your database engine that makes it extremely usable to write complicated logic or just to use the ubiquitous nature of SQL. And from there, my journey, be it working in data and analytics or working with the system of record uh, source systems like ERP systems or CRM systems has kind of have gone through that same iteration of the journey. And I continue to see that in enterprises in this space as well. Yeah. 
Hey, in the in the article too, you talked about, and we you know you see on maybe it's LinkedIn, Twitter popping up all the time. Data mesh, data mesh, data mesh. Everybody's talking about data mesh. I'm not sure how many people are actually really sort of adopting all the principles right now. I think there there's some really interesting concepts around it though. And in the article, you had some opinions on you know this notion of centralized or decentralized data teams and data products being developed. Can you talk to me a minute about why you might feel strongly one way or the other, some of the challenges and perspectives that you have around that centralized versus decentralized type of approach? Yeah. Theoretically, anything that is decentralized now in the current day and age is supposed is supposedly the best thing that you could do, right? And there is no one area of uh, failure that will kind of have repercussions. In short, there is value in both. And I think um, uh, one of the big questions that leaders need to ask themselves or architects need to ask themselves is the squeeze worth the juice, right? Um, because when you look at the timing, the amount of time it takes, the the resources that you have at hand and the people and the engineers that you have at hand and the technologies that you have at hand, they all play an important role in, in, picking, a, uh, in picking a strategy, right? So mesh as a, as a theory is great, but there are some serious <laughs> questions about performance when it comes to handling volume and uh, um, amount of uh, data that you could ingest and uh, retrieve at the same time. So there, there's a lot. I mean, it is conceptually it's good, and and it is not something new. It's been around for a while. I mean, you know, now we just have a new names and terminologies around it. It's really something that existed. I mean, there are companies like Donato and Sinchi. Uh, they have been doing virtualization of your data forever. Right. But it works well with smaller use use cases and data sets. But I think the ability to have that managed performance at scale is going to be difficult. So the basic concept is no matter what your sources of on the analytics side, on the OLAP side, no matter what your sources are, your multiple warehouses and multiple clouds, they should be able to connect talk and replicate across and then be able to. So this has been happening on that transactional side on the OLTP side forever. So you have distributed SQL, which kind of helps you accomplish that, right? The evolution of big data on the transactional side to be able to shop, to be able to create these tablets and then uh, uh, replicate them across uh, regions and still have low latency is being accomplished on the OLDP side and hasn't been accomplished on the OLAP side. And I think our journey, if you go back and check in technology, you see the major database transformations happen on the OLTP side before they actually get accomplished on the OLAP side. And I think meshes the same thing on what we are doing with distributed SQL on the OLTP side, but really without structure <laughs> on the analytics side. I mean, that's my take on it. And again, I think it's really important to know how much volume you're talking about, what are your ecosystems, and who are your vendors you're working with. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And I mean, talking about if you say data mesh is kind of a, a trendy item right now in the in the data world, you are heavily involved in the CDO roundtable forum for the Midwest, Richie. Very interested to hear just as you're getting together with those data leaders, what are you hearing? What what are the trends that are emerging from that group? What are people looking at? Where are they starting to place their bets in terms of investments as well around data? That's a great question. I, I think before I answer that question, I think I, I do want to qualify <laughs> my observations, right? I think uh, my insights are basically based off of my experience 
at Sherwin and my experience uh, prior to Sherwin in consulting um, uh, with few different financial services enterprises and uh, including manufacturing companies. And two, serving as a co-chair and uh, sorry, uh, helping uh, with the CDRTF in the Midwest region as well. We deal with about 40 different Fortune 500 um, data analytics execs. We all get together and talk about the trends that they are seeing, the directions that they are going in their journey. So, uh, those are the qualifiers, right? Uh, and to answer your question, you know, thanks to COVID, uh, every enterprise um, in this particular space, at least in the Midwest region, are going through two important initiatives. One is their enterprise data strategy, right? Uh, using analytics, AI, and, M and ML. Uh, lots of great work is being done in that auto AI and auto ML space. And uh, the success we've seen with Snowflake is a testament with that in the analytics space. On the second side is uh, the digital transformation journey that every company is going through or enterprise is going through, especially in this particular region. Uh, enterprises are becoming more flexible, less hierarchical, faster and trying to be more sustainable you know since the recent conference in glasgow uh, everyone's talking about sustainability and that's part of your digital transformation journey and i see that often you know companies are making lightning fast pivot to digital uh, especially during this pandemic and out of necessity right and top of the agenda of every company in this particular region central region is uh, highest is their data strategy and uh, they want uh, that to be included in their digital side. The pandemic basically has uh, certainly raised confidence with overall aspirations in, in about a quarter, three years worth of uh, change happened, which I personally witnessed at, uh, at Sherwin too. You know, our news uh, CTO, uh, Ivy Chin, has made strides of progress with such change uh, within a 156-year-old organization and uh, with operations in over 110 countries. We've, we've seen some massive um, uh, changes in culture. Uh, and it was something that we would have taken months before. And we've seen a lot of such stories, not just within uh, with my experience at Sherman, but I have also heard a lot of uh, uh, execs and leaders in the space uh, say the same thing. So to answer your question, I think the two big trends, the enterprise data strategy and digital transformation has been uh, really on the forefront in every C-suite exec's agenda. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And you mentioned uh, some of the auto ML and AI tooling. Any that catch your attention more than others there? Just curious. Yeah, actually, there are a lot of good ones, right? There are a lot of good ones. There's data. There's H2O.AI. There's uh, small companies like Abel based off of uh, Bay Area. And so the purpose is pretty simple, right? If you, if you go check manufacturing supply chain, uh, retail, most retail companies, th their initiatives are all pretty similar uh, at, the, at this point, right? To address product servitization, to address digital twin, to have a CX strategy, to, uh, you know, uh, to address sustainability, um, establish ESGs and SDGs driven from the recent uh, COP26 conference in Glasgow and, you know, understand your carbon footprint or greenhouse gases emissions, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these initiatives are can be repeatable and with your system of, you know, record source systems, you know, serving the data. And when you do serve the same data sets and you can run similar models on your data you can replicate those models across enterprises and i think that's where the value is because you don't 
need to hire a PhD, so-called data scientist, and then have no idea about your business, but you rather empower your business and your users that actually know the logistics and the supply chain difficulties of running your business and empower them with the with the tools that math and algorithm, these complicated algorithms will provide. And I think that's where the sweet spot is because I think many companies in this particular region have built data science practices from scratch and these rogue data scientists going and building uh, so-called models in Python and lots of Scala-based, Apache-based tooling, which is really not replicatable. And most of the time you have massive problems in being able to production them right uh, across across devices etc it it is it is you don't even get to that point you know let alone the success rate uh, you know you're probably su- having success rates of nine out of ten models not being useful at all and then the one that is useful you have very short duration so that's why it's very very important to be able to leverage tools that are there and that companies that have been doing this for a very long time and it is a repeatable accelerable process so so and I think that's that's the trend that we are seeing and not everybody is a LinkedIn right not everybody is a Facebook that they need to have complex custom models to run. <laughs> but if you see in standard industry domains, most of your problems can be reused by what's available in the industry and then customize it from on top of it. And that's what I've seen in that particular space. Yeah, there's some there's some really interesting use cases like you talked about. You look at manufacturing, I think, for that auto ML space, uh, things like uh, product quality, supply chain optimization, healthcare you know, better patient experience, maybe some of the R&D that goes on in FinServe too, I think has a lot of opportunities beyond just uh, fraud detection. And it's interesting, you mentioned the data science side of it, because one of the things as I've looked at, and I know we're kind of diverting off of the the core uh, topics here, but I just think it's an interesting space. And you brought up a great point. One of the things I see appealing about some of these auto ML tools is the ability to, to, really attract a range of personas. In other words, if you've got data scientists that really want to get into the core of development, have your tool allow me to do that, but maybe also appeal to analysts that really just want to incorporate ML into their workflows, don't want to get into the heavy design aspect of it. And uh, I think it's really interesting where that where that space is going and, and some great recommendations uh, around the tooling that you mentioned earlier. Right. And a couple more maybe bullet points, if I may add on that. And I think data scientists have been a job that has been glorified beyond, I personally think, than the need, is, need existed, in especially in non-financial sector, I would imagine. Because within a proper setting, within, uh, within having the correct leadership who has went through building those models and tools, for the business's purpose and really having an educated leadership is really needed. And unfortunately, a lot of the enterprises, especially like you said, in supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, you don't really have that. You're starting this from scratch and you don't really have guidance, right? And I think the the big problem is that in 2021 that we saw the market-wide supply chain disruptions, unprecedented cost inflation, which caused basically labor constraints, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is not just for your company, it is across, right? And, and when that, and when you understand that, uh, you know the majority of your problems that data science can solve usually can be solved with a dozen algorithms at best, <laughs> at best, right? You know there are lo- lots of low hanging fruit and. Companies like Microsoft, companies like AWS, especially using SageMaker and the, and the suite of products that AWS has, so does Microsoft. You don't really need those advanced 
uh, uh, degrees anymore. You are enabling, and even if you see the enterprise at Sherwin or similar companies here, you know you have thousands of thousands of analysts, and you have less than a dozen of so-called data scientists. And and it, it it doesn't it doesn't matter because you have to enable your thousands of analysts who are work, responsible for various business uh, functions to be able to use these predictive modeling based reporting or an analytics than enabling the, the dozen people that is supposed to put a strategy for the entire organization. So it's not going to work. So it has to be a self-service model and it has to be meeting the analysts, meeting your customers right where they are, than trying to build some practice that is more centrally focused. So I think that's changing. And, and I think that's why these tools are going to be more and more enabled across line of divisions. Yeah, I agree. I think the the major cloud providers and some of these other tools that you mentioned earlier are doing a nice job of helping get to that. First of all, take care of end-to-end around that AutoML process all the way to production, but getting to that production state a lot quicker, which is tough to do when you're developing it from scratch with a a team of very uh, very smart very capable data scientists but it just it you know the time involved in that and the one off nature of it can get really difficult not very replicatable i had kind of an off the wall question for you. i'm just curious the 40 or so i think you mentioned 40 or so companies in that cdo roundtable forum that you co-chair anybody in that group that has not embraced cloud yet just curious not you don't have to mention names <laughs> but is, are there any companies no. out of the four okay so zero no, no. Everybody is making. I mean, the maturity level of of enterprises are at various stages. You know, um, we usually talk about the growth of a child, right? Some of them are in that toddler infancy stage. Some are in teenage years. Some are going to college, right? Uh, so you you see, I see certain trends for sure. I mean, financial sectors are usually a lot more mature in their journey versus uh, some of healthcare and supply chain and retail companies that you would think retail are actually most retail companies, especially in the Fortune 500 space, they are their CX journey, CX strategy is a lot more mature than the rest of their infrastructure being beyond the cloud. I think we all know, right? And I keep saying this often, uh, cloud is a must and hybrid is inevitable. So we're all going to go into the cloud and when we do get there, we will face the challenges of um, the hybrid environments that we'll have, to, that's, which is inevitable. So I keep that as a tagline and it usually works. I mean, is there anything you can think of that would cause me to not at least embrace the cloud or hybrid cloud model for my data state today in 2022? I can't think of anything. I'm just curious. Is there any reason that you wouldn't do that today? So if you have proprietary custom applications that you built, right, in financial sectors, in automotive industry, I can't really take a lot of names, but there is a lot of proprietary software and applications built. And I think actually I do can take one example. So at Yugabyte, GM is one of our customers and the OnStar application, which connects millions of cars across the globe and also in the, in the Americas, they all generate data all the time. And that goes into a centralized, not centralized, that goes into a database. Historically, it was uh, a Cassandra database, but then now that's currently migrated over into Yugabyte and uh, it's distributed into multiple regions and end zones. And it is highly available and needs to be the number of writes uh, and the number of reads should be consistently taken care. And applications like that, they are all 
still being managed and maintained in data centers. And eventually, some of these might get migrated into the cloud. But if it is very proprietary, if it is all homegrown, right, and um, such applications will still be in companies' data centers. But if there is something that is not, there is no reason to recreate the wheel. Companies do will embrace the cloud. And, you know, if you, you're, we're talking about hyper automation with edge computing, right? We're talking about smart factories and plant floor efficiencies. Uh, a lot of this, there are proprietary custom applications that could be built for these particular initiatives, but there are also a lot that are being reused across industries. And that's where cloud is going to be extremely useful for that reusability component, especially in the IoT space. Yeah. I just find it interesting. Every once in a while, I'll run across uh, an organization that is using maybe a SaaS-based application, maybe something like HR, yet the data side of it, nope, you know, we're we're staying where we are uh, on-prem. I just think it puts so much constraint on your teams, on your data teams, on your application teams when you when you take that, you know, really hard line approach around that. It does. It's not very often, but I was just curious out of that roundtable forum if anybody was like that. No, nobody is. I mean, I think you always have 80-20 rule, right? The 20% that will be fully customized that need to be on cloud or something like that. But I think, you know, most people, not many companies are there 80% out in the cloud yet. They're all making their journey out there, right? But, uh, and that's why hybrid is going to be inevitable. The hybrid could be your bare metals uh, data centers, or it could be another cloud, or it could be, (laughs) it could be anything. It's offline, right? So whatever that is, you will make that journey. And like you said, on the data analytics side, there are not many use cases that would be saying that, oh, this doesn't qualify for the cloud. We need to do it on-prem. So I don't think that uh, there are many of such use cases, as many as on the other side. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hey, I heard you mention, I want to get into the topic of the day with you, Richie, but I heard you talking about consistency and reads right. Shout out to Preet Paul Singh. Uh, he and I used to have this discussion quite a bit. And I would be the first to say, you know, talking about eventual consistency as it related to something like Cassandra, I was not qualified to. He very much was. (laughs) So he could take you into detail around why eventual consistency could be an issue. So not that we want to go down that that road necessarily, but (laughs) take me a little bit into this decision process. You're with Yugabyte today. You're principal at Yugabyte. Why Yugabyte? Mm -hmm. Give me some of the differences there. What about that decision? process to make the move what inspired you some of those kind of things yeah that's that's great yeah i'm happy to dwell into that and i'm actually super excited to be at yugabyte and uh, it's been i've only been here a handful number of weeks and it's been uh, awesome few weeks uh, so let me uh, start with the history a little bit right and i think i mentioned this in the beginning of our call so i've started my career like um, you know most of us right building linked data models on oracle databases uh, when uh, relational data models were extremely popular and everyone learned and built uh, using ef God's uh, relational DBMS principles, our DBMS principles. I've done similar work on Oracle ERP using the upper half of the database engine. I worked on the language layer of the database engine on the upper half of the database using Oracle Store Procedures, PL SQL, you know, and helped build two of the modules, um, Oracle Process, um, Process Manufacturing and Advanced Process Manufacturing. 
at that point, you know, actually, we did not have the power of Java or Go like we see today, right? For scripting, uh, PLC code was literally everything. And today we have um, a little over 350 databases that are out, out there that exist. And and I'll go into that, right? The categorization of those uh, databases is how they 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 qualify and uh, and the trends there too, and which kind of led me towards Yugabyte. Do you broadly categorize databases? Because I saw an article the other day on LinkedIn, it broadly categorized SQL and NoSQL. Is, is that accurate? Do you feel like there's more differentiation than that? Or is that is that an accurate categorization of the database world? Because you mentioned 350 databases. Do they all fall into either SQL or NoSQL? So <laughs> that's, that's a good question. And I, I think I need to think about that for a second. But uh, no, I, I mean, uh, it's a good categorization. I mean, you can categorize uh, databases. Does it have relational components like consistency, familiarity, and security, right? Which is kind of using the RDP concepts. And then there is the non-relational aspects of it, which is re resiliency, scalability, is it geo-distributed? Right. And then also there is where it's deployed. Right. Is it open source? Is it a multi-cloud environment? Is it hybrid and data center based? So those usually are like the three subsets where the database is for. And NoSQL could be categorized into any of those three particular buckets. Right. Um, is it as a relational or non-relational database? So that's how I would see it. And uh, in order to really qualify right for relational components of it, you should see that does the database provide asset transactions, right? Does it have, uh, does it qualify for the cap theorem, uh, the consistency, uh, availability and par and partition tolerance? That is, is that uh, an option available for the system of record database? Is it a system of record database, which is an OLTP database, or is it an OLAP database, which is, you know, that's where Snowflake, Redshift, BigQuery, all of these databases come in. On the OLTP side, you have Postgres, MySQL, Microsoft SQL Server, Cassandra, Oracle, MariaDB, Redis, all of these other databases come on the transactional side. So I think there are a few different ways to categorize databases. Like I said, there are about 350 databases that are out there. And out of the 350, in fact, there is a study that a survey that Stack Overflow does every year. And I think the the, the most recent one, if you see, about 49,500 odd respondents uh, that were professionals that are in the engineer uh, are either software engineers or developers uh, took part in the survey and uh, you would see the most popular database and uh, love database on the top uh, two is usually PostgreSQL right everybody loves Postgres and then you have MySQL Postgres right there one next to each other and then you have uh, I think it was MySQL was the most popular one and then Postgres was the second most I think it's it's one of the other and then you'll see Oracle scaling down in the 15th position or so and right but if you categorize all of these databases how many of them provide the uh, you know resiliency and scalability you know there are few and how many of them provide abms there are very few how many do both of them <laughs> right uh, there is only like couple right amazon aurora and then google spanner but you know you get one or the other <laughs> and then uh, to actually have the mix of both is where Yugabyte comes into picture, <laughs> our value proposition, right? We do, uh, Yugabyte provides OLTP. Uh, it's for your transactional workloads, provides real-time engagement, uh, you know, for your user-facing applications. It's geo-distributed, so you can, uh, you know, have regions and zones across multiple data centers and GCP, AWS, or bare metals, or uh, Azure, and VMware, tons of, like, 
however you want <laughs> it is any platform agnostic uh, and it's it could be cloud native you can set up a cloud native microservices as well so there's there's uh, you know a lot of these uh, you know feature functionalities are really great and kind of really led me into the direction to believe that you know we it is a very niche space and it is extremely extremely difficult you know i on the OLAP side uh, it's difficult to bring data and consolidate, but on the OLTP side, it's not just about consolidating, but just to have it available all the time, right? So so there are, I, I'm hearing you mention a lot of different core, I don't know if I want to call them features or capabilities, but you've got this distributed capability, number one, you've got, I heard you talk about availability, horizontal scalability, this geo distribution, maybe multi-cloud. Also, interestingly to me, Yugabyte is a hundred percent open source. It's Apache two o. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's so exactly you jumped right. you jumped uh, feet first into the open source <laughs> open source world. That's a long way from uh, or- Oracle database. <laughs> it totally is. It is. Uh, <laughs> let me give you a, maybe one line. Uh, you know, definition. Right. Uh, so Yugabyte uh, is the company behind Yugabyte DB. Yugabyte database is a open source, uh, high performance dis- distributed SQL database for um, building global internet scale applications. Essentially, right? You know, the founders came from Facebook, and uh, they were res- responsible for. Actually, in fact, uh, one of our co-founders, Karthik, actually named Cassandra to be Cassandra. <laughs> the Cassandra database came out of from Facebook. So. Really, really, really impressive leaders that are there at this company. And Yugabyte as a database is open source, but our platform, our Yugabyte Anywhere and Yugabyte Cloud, Anywhere Cloud is our offerings around that particular database. The commercial offerings. Yes, but the database is free. The database is free. It's open source. You guys can fork it out of GitHub, can be deployed without even letting us know. And uh, and it can, you know, if you want to manage the sharding mechanism, the distribution using scripts or whatever manual capabilities. And there's a lot of that uh, available on our GitHub, on Yugabyte's GitHub uh, for self-managed projects. Yes, if that is the case, we do want the database uh, to be adopted and, and uh, reused and used over and over. So you don't need to tell us about it but if you don't want to wear that pager anymore at some point you decide you don't want to pay wear that pager to be a, to be managing your sharding mechanisms or managing your infrastructure that that needs to be uh, you know highly highly available then uh, you know we are happy to help out with our um, you know you could buy it anywhere as a platform yeah, so I've got a nice choice there. I can go Yugabyte uh, anywhere in the cloud. You're going to manage that all for me, take care of everything there. Looking at some of the metrics, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yugabyte's 80-plus countries. You guys have a really uh, strong Slack community as well. I believe it's over 4,000 right now, million-plus transactions per second, really solid. I'd, I'd be interested to know, I feel like there are a lot of opportunities to, and this is firmly in the OLTP space, right? Right, right. Yes, it is. And so I was wondering to be able to build applications in that OLTP space, you've got a lot of languages that Yugabyte supports, everything from Java to C and Python, everything in between. I mean, it seems like a really nice supported tool bag to say, hey, I want to uptake Yugabyte today, build some OLTP apps and you know really have an impact on some of these features and capabilities that you talked about in terms of resiliency geolocation all those kind of things 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the big things that developers or um, you know teams use Postgres is because it's free, right? And and Postgres is very very prevalent on the OLTP side because most of your applications are built for the cloud or you know serving your customer facing use cases, right? And for that, when you do go with Postgres, you know, it's usually it's a monolithic architecture. You are in one node and you scale it, and then until you can't scale it anymore, right? But if you have accidental success of your app that you're building off of your single node architecture, and then suddenly, okay, let's scale this to X million users or around the world, then that's when you'll start to now figure about I need high availability, I need low uh, low latency, and I, I need this to be now scaled right away. So that that's not a supported architecture anymore. And you do have to get into that microservices base. So most customers that have used Postgres till they can't anymore, right? And there's a direct migration pattern because we are fully Postgres compatible on the top layer background uh, uh, and using um, the raft consensus algorithm protocol is where, you know, the proprietary, the good sauce of the <laughs> database is, right? So, and, and also like the company, uh, what really impressed me about the opportunity at Yugabyte was that the founders are among the most accomplished and respected people in the database space uh, and the technology industry most broad, more broadly, right? Um, in a short period of time, since founding, you know, Yugabyte has got incredible amount of credibility from not just from the developer community, but also from the enterprise customers, like really big names. Um, like I mentioned, GM already, we we got Kroger doing a lot of a lot of great work, Narvar with every packaging transactions. I could go on with like a lot of really great big enterprises that are using Yugabyte in production for big problems, for solving big problems, right? And it is a unique situation for a company so young to have such a broad base of customers, community members, and also, you know, enterprise engagements. So just a testament to the powerful platform that Yugabyte team has built and the talented uh, team that delivers and supports it. So it was an easy decision. Obviously, I was trying to focus on OLAP space, but, uh, you know, I think uh, there are... uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of action happening there, and there's there's a lot of good work being done with great companies. And I think uh, on the OLTP side, um, you know, we haven't been made that huge transformation from open source databases. And because there's a lot of these applications are built on open source databases uh, in big in giant companies from hyperscalers. So yeah. No, very cool. So you mentioned GM, Kroger, some of the other large enterprises. Is is Yugabyte? Could I be a startup today looking to build? my initial one or two or three OLTP apps all the way to those large enterprises, I guess I'm asking, is there an ideal profile for a Yugabyte customer today? That's a great question. I mean, if you have something on Postgres and you need to scale, obviously, you know, it's an easy migration. You can get directly onto Yugabyte. Uh, that's that's one way to look at it. And then the other thing is, you know, if you're building a large scale, you don't have to worry about scale right now. Even if you're building a, a small proprietary demo environment on Yugabyte database. You can do it on the on the free open source version of the database within so-called demo environment stack, right? You spend your own compute resources, spend your own storage. But when you're ready to scale it, when you want the geodistribution, you could also do the sharding mechanism yourself within your environment and then set up the whole infrastructure around it. Or we, we could uh, you know choose to go the Yugabyte anywhere 
uh, as an option or you, or you choose to use Yugabyte Anywhere Cloud, which is uh, another way to get your database migrated and support the infrastructure. So, I mean, there, there are a few different options, but I think one of the important things as part of everyone's cloud native applications journey, right, uh, the, the, the history of how they evolved, you know, initially relational model became dominant. It was simple, powerful, and it was easy to understand. And 50 years later, it's still a simple, powerful, and it's easy to understand. So people are moving from commercial databases like Oracle SQL Server and Oracle and go using more of open source databases of MySQL and Postgres because they support the cloud really well for building cloud native applications. And that's where the open source databases took off. Back then, nobody ran business critical applications. And now that you run business critical applications in the cloud and and on mobile, you start to look at addressing you know, scaling problems. So, you know, that's where you start looking into mobile development. You start off on Postgres and instead of that, you can start off on Yugabyte. You know, one of the things that caught my attention on Yugabyte too, I really like how the company has outlined ways that you can contribute. I was talking to a colleague the other day about some of the advantages of open source and Yugabyte has really done a nice job of saying, hey, if you get energy writing code, help us, you know, find it. <laughs> Grab an open issue on GitHub and, and get after it. Maybe report a bug. You can jump into the Slack community, mention over 4,000 users there, help answer questions in Stack Overflow. Maybe you are really good at technical documentation. You can help edit that. I, I just love that ability in the open source world that Yugabyte makes available. You go, hey, how do I build, as maybe as a young person, Richie, how do I build a technically compelling resume, whether it's at my current company or not, maybe we're not doing any open source, man, jump into the Yugabyte community and start contributing. What do you think? That's great. I mean, database is the foundational piece for everything, for every application, I would say, right? Be it cloud or be it mobile or um, anything that is your user or the customer facing. Not on the data analytics side, but I think that even there it is, but there's so many great projects that are going on and we are highly compatible with Postgres. We are getting very good at Cassandra, and I'm sure we're going to be adding uh, other APIs down the line uh, as, as the company grows, right? So it is not just for contribution, but it is also from learning from other people, uh, from other engineers and other devs across the world who are using to solve unique problems using their own infrastructure and using Yugabyte database within the crux of it, right? So I think it's great to see and learn from and have the shared beliefs of what makes a strong and successful company, you know, and see how others are doing that. I think there's there's plenty of ways to contribute. There's plenty of ones to learn too. Not just the Slack community, but also, you know, engaging with, there's a lot of webinars and LinkedIn uh, Friday tech talks that happen to listen in to the founders, to listen in to some of the key leaders that came from Google and AWS uh, that are part of our leadership team here and our core team that are helping build Yugabyte Cloud and Yugabyte as a platform. Absolutely. Hey, you know what's coming next? We're at the top here. Uh, you up for a lightning round of questions? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. All right. Cool. Hey, what's a technology you can't live without in your role at Yugabyte? <laughs> That's great. Uh, Slack for sure. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with that community you guys have going. Hey, what time of day are you most productive either morning or evening? Definitely very productive in the morning. I think if I have to get really creative, it's usually at pretty late at night, uh, but definitely more productive in the morning. Midday always gets the, the short end, it seems like. <laughs> Nobody ever chooses midday. It's either early or late. Hey, do you have a, uh, a go-to cook-at-home meal or take-out delivery meal that you really enjoy? Take-out delivery meal that we 
we do these uh, vegan bean burgers quite often all the time. <laughs> and I think it's some kind of a paleo smoothie um, that goes along with it. So uh, if nothing, it's top on our list. Go to meal at home, sear tuna steaks or something, you know, just put it on a small bowl of rice and I think it's ready to go. It doesn't really take much time, 20 minutes, me and my wife, we can get that out. And done. Yeah quick and delicious. Hey, do you have a go-to that you like if you put your laptop down, put your uh, mobile phone down for a while that you unplug from tech for a little while? Oh, well, it's, it's I think <laughs> the problem is going from one tech to the other uh, is, is probably what my answer is. I think if usually Peloton classes, um, you know, on the bike are, are my go-to uh, when I'm off or however long I am. And uh, I'm usually taking a 30-minute class or a ride or something. So it might usually be that. Very nice. Very nice. Last one is, do you have another company that you are watching closely right now? Oh, nice. Great question. I mean, in the database space, obviously, I've been watching Yugobyte for 18 months or something. The vision was very convincing and I was waiting for the time to be right. And to sum it all, the energy and the passion at Yugobyte is so contagious and I just kind of got sucked into it. <laughs> Everyone here leads with example and it's been a pleasure working here. But besides, I think there's a bunch, like I said, on the automated AI space, a lot going on. But I think within Amazon, I was actually at the Amazon Summit uh, last week in the keynote. They mentioned the world has generated in 2021 alone 97 zettabyte of data. That is insane. Just in this year, 97 zettabyte of data. So that's multiple trips around from the Earth to our moon and back. If you stack <laughs> one terabyte in one hard disk uh, and, and stack them up. So that's that's insane if you think about it, right? So if as data is getting created and consumed so much, I think that the work that is happening in the space of transactional databases and the infrastructure that support these transactional databases is a space to look out for. So that's what I would say. And I'm not taking another name, but I'm just giving you a high level. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, really appreciate you uh, joining the show back. Always welcome. It was great having you back on HashMap on Tap. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Have a good rest of the day. <laughs> absolutely. And for anyone that is looking to dive further into OLTP apps, you've got a tremendous open source option with Yugabyte, scalable, resistant, consistent, basically can locate it anywhere on the planet. Reach out to Richie if you have any questions on that. He'll always ping you back on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. Thanks everybody for listening in today. Really appreciate each one of you. Would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Visit us at hashmapinc.com. Send us any feedback or comments. We'd love to hear from you. We will see you soon on another episode. Take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.